Hello, and welcome to the Frontier Strategy Group podcast series. FSG is the leading advisory and information services partner for emerging market executives. We partner with business leaders at hundreds of multinationals by providing them with advisory support, information assets, and consulting services that help inform and empower their growth strategies in their most critical markets. The focus of today's discussion is FSG's recent report on winning in a more competitive India. It's the latest in our India research offering. My name is Richard Leggett, and I'm the CEO of Frontier Strategy Group, and joining me for today's discussion from FSG's Singapore office is Pratima Singh, FSG's practice leader for Asia-Pacific Research. As a reminder, this podcast and all of our India research and insights are available to FSG clients via our Frontier View platform. Pratima, thanks for joining me, and welcome. Thanks, Rich. It's great to be here today. I'm excited about this discussion because uh, in our discussions, India is becoming a more interesting and more important market in our clients' APAC portfolio, especially as we look at China slowing down. And India is a pretty, uh, uh, is a pretty independent market from China, pretty immune to China's slowdown. It, it's pretty independent from that. Um, but at the same time, the economy is facing several headwinds due to its ballooning current account deficit and widening government deficit. The rupee, as we know, depreciated significantly against the U.S. dollar this year, and the country's already weak financial sector deteriorated further. So despite this, uh, executives still remain cautiously optimistic. Why is that? Um, that's right, Rich. You, you absolutely highlighted a couple of the major risks that the Indian economy is facing um, in the short term. Uh, but what's, what's important to note is that a lot of these risks are um, in the near term, right? So, so there's a lot of pressure on the rupee, as you, as you rightly pointed out. It's been extremely weak and, and volatile even. Um, uh, a lot of this is because uh, the rupee uh, is very um, sort of uh, inversely correlated to oil prices. So as uh, oil prices increase, and we saw a lot of that this year, we saw that oil prices increased more than previously expected, uh, which really put a lot of pressure on India's uh, current account deficit, simply because the current uh, the country uh, imports a lot of its oil. And uh, because of that, the current account uh, deficit widened, um, which really created a lot of pressure. Then along with that, um, there's also a very large government deficit that the country runs. And um, uh, this is because, um, of course, uh, in general, revenues don't necessarily uh, equal uh, government expenditure in India, uh, but also because the government has been very, very actively increasing spending, uh, particularly before national elections uh, sometime next year. Um, and as a result, we've seen a lot of that um, sort of uh, widening uh, trade and current account deficit along with the widening government budget, uh, sort of just putting a lot of pressure on the rupee. Um, the other thing that you mentioned, which is another big risk in the Indian economy, is the financial sector weakness. Um, and a lot of that is because of the high rate of non-performing assets on uh, banks' uh, balance sheets in India as well as a lot of non-banking financial corporations in India have been going through some uh, crises of their own. Um, so a lot of these factors have kind of come together and are creating short-term headwinds uh, in India. Uh, but that said, it's very important to kind of take a step back and also look at the more medium to long-term picture in India. Um, we, we've seen that um, uh, growth is, I mean, it's a very large market, and uh, more importantly, it's a very fast-growing market. Even in, in the uh, base, in a conservative base case scenario, we expect uh, more than 7% growth, maybe 7.3 to 7.4 in the next few years, which is, for the economy the size of India, a very, very substantial uh, amount of opportunity and growth coming in. 
Um, that and along with the fact that the uh, operating environment in the country is improving quite a bit, we're seeing executives on the ground and, and in the region and even in HQ um, uh, relatively cautiously optimistic about the market and, and really kind of, uh, as you mentioned, increasing their interest in this market just because there's um, uh, that there's a lot of opportunity and lots, lots of um, sort of white space to capture. And one of the questions before we get into the competition topic, uh, Pratima, that I have is just we, we constantly hear from executives that, uh, you know, they're intrigued by the size and the growth of India. They're concerned about the operational, uh, uh, the complexity of the oper- operating environment. And you talk about the environments gradually improving. And with elections coming next year, um, do you see this uh, operating in- environment improvement uh, continuing, accelerating into elections? Does, do elections pose any risk to that momentum? Because this is this is kind of a critical period for India in terms of uh, attracting uh, increased in- investment from uh, from multinationals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that That's a great question, Rich. So I think um, in terms of the operating environment, uh, we're, we're seeing a lot of the benefits of some of the um, sort of the policy uh, decisions that the Modi administration made a couple of years ago, uh, whether it's regards to, say, the implementation of the GST, uh, you know, increased spending on infrastructure. A lot of that is sort of materializing now. So recently, the World Bank's um, ease of doing business uh, survey results um, uh, were released, and in India has jumped now to 77 out of 189 countries in the ranking. Uh, And this is uh, down from 130 two years ago and 100 last year. So we're seeing some of that uh, benefit of of the previous momentum sort of materialize now. That said, um, you're absolutely right. Uh, Elections are coming up mid next year. And so we're not going to see the Modi administration really uh, implementing any new reforms. Uh, They're really kind of focusing more on increasing spending a little bit more populist um, and and to some extent even protectionist uh, measures. Uh, But that said, we do expect that uh, post-elections we we, uh, can see some of that sort of ease up again as as, um, our base case materializes, which is that the Modi uh, government comes back into power, even though uh, with potentially less of a majority uh, than they did in the last round. All right, so let's dig in now. So a natural consequence of increased interest in India is intensifying competition. And I know you spent some time recently in Delhi and Mumbai and Bangalore uh, interviewing executives. And how much of a problem is this increased competition for them? Um, this is a real challenge for, for a lot of our executives on the ground. Um, as you mentioned, they spend substantial amounts of time talking to executives in India, also speak to a lot of executives um, in regional heads uh, looking at um, India, China, and Southeast Asia. And this is really uh, a big concern for them. Uh, in fact, um, uh, there's a recent survey that reported 91% of CEOs in India are concerned about their competitors' ability to take business away. So really, we, we can see that intensifying competition is making it difficult for executives to hit their ambitious growth targets that they have for the market, and it's also eroding margins quite substantially. Could I just interrupt one second? Is that 91% um, local CEOs, or is that um, Western, mm-hmm. Western multinational yeah. India general managers? Yeah, so it's CEOs of, of a combination of companies. Uh, these include foreign companies and, and Western multinationals that are that are, business, are doing business in India, but also local companies in India uh, that that um, are facing this, this this kind of competition. So any executives on the ground really are are dealing with um, a more competitive threats. Okay, sorry, and I didn't mean to derail you. I know you were going to give a couple of more statistics. 
No, that that's absolutely fine. I actually was just going to um, highlight why this is really a problem, and and it can be kind of um, sort of uh, pegged to the fact that brand loyalty in India remains quite quite low and quite quite a challenge uh, even today. Um, again, similar survey, but the other the statistic that that we highlighted was 92% of CEOs uh, are concerned about the loyalty of their customers because there's so many choices and so many pr- uh, brands present in the market that they don't really have that um, that uh, resonance with the, with the customer just just yet. Um, so basically, this is becoming a very, very significant challenge that uh, executives and multinational executives need to address um, very, very urgently in India today. Yeah, and I think this this interest is uh, resulting in a large number of uh, players competing for this same market and executives, as you mentioned, are, are feeling some of the pressure. Uh, and that makes understanding the competitive landscape very critical. Uh, can you talk a little bit about some of the key drivers that are, or the key forces or factors that are exacerbating the competitive pressures on our clients in India? You, you highlight, I thought, very wisely uh, four that I thought were quite interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And and uh, while there are a lot of other factors as well, one of the things that's changed and the things that actually is rapidly um, sort of evolving are these four factors that are driving competition in India. Um, the first is the emergence of uh, new players. And uh, these are specifically regional players uh, that are uh, basically bringing in new products uh, that's changing the market at a much faster pace than before, which is really making it very difficult for, for executives uh, to stay ahead of competition. Um, uh, basically, this is in addition to investment from Western companies, uh, a lot of Chinese investment is also flowing into India, which is really leading to direct competition between a lot of our Western multinational companies and large Chinese players uh, to win the Indian market. And um, what's really particularly interesting in this, uh, in this particular factor is that Chinese companies operate on a fundamentally different model than uh, Western multinationals. They, they, um, Chinese companies have very deep pockets and aren't liable or answerable to shareholders like many of the Western companies are. And as a result, they're, they're able to really employ a different sort of model uh, when, when um, trying to um, win and, and trying to get success in the Indian market. I thought it was interesting, too, that um, the, the majority of that Chinese investment is, is focused heavily in the industrial space, which we know... Uh, was a, a, a major emphasis of the Modi administration to uh, to start to you know, drive and promote more industrial um, investment in in India. I'm not sure he wanted it from the that's Chinese, exactly but right. uh, but nevertheless, it seems like that's where, <laughs> a, big, <laughs> where a big investment uh, emphasis is. That's exactly right, and and um, I think uh, that's kind of putting a lot of pressure now on the Modi government to kind of uh, try and localize um, uh, some of the um, manufacturing and the industrial production, and that's another factor that we'll talk about. But the idea is that they're putting up some of these import tariffs uh, that are specifically targeting goods that are being imported from China in order to reduce some of that dependency uh, on Chinese investment. What about some of the other factors? There's, you, you talk about increasing local sophistication uh, by the local companies getting more sophisticated and also new customer segments. Yes. So um, the second factor, like you mentioned, is is this, uh, local sophistication levels. And uh, while that's kind of, uh, there have always been large family-run conglomerates in India that have kind of been competitors for our clients, for multinationals. Uh, but recently what we're seeing is more medium-sized uh, local companies and startups that have started increasing the, the intensity of competition. And this is also exacerbated by the rapid pace of digitalization uh, that's really increasing these competitive pressures. These 
local companies, startups are a lot more agile in responding to market changes and, and as a result are, are disrupting some of the sectors that our, our clients tend to um, work in. And as a result, there's more uh, sophistication from, from local startups as well. The third factor is essentially uh, our clients and, and multinationals more generally shifting and expanding their customer segments. So they're serving newer, more price-sensitive customers that tend to be concentrated in the middle segment. And earlier, they addressed only the very niche and the premium segment of the market, which left a lot of white space um, in the rest of it. But now what's happening is that they're focusing more on a global uh, or the value segment, which we, which we uh, basically term as global because uh, customers in that segment really want global or comparable products, but are only willing to pay local prices. And so it's becoming a very fiercely contested uh, price-sensitive segment that uh, foreign and local companies are, are competing uh, within. The last thing I'll mention is around uh, increasing protectionism, kind of what I alluded to earlier, which is that uh, a lot of um, government policies are, are slowly being uh, aimed at encouraging localization, uh, which is making it more difficult for MNCs that are currently using their import and sell model in India uh, to be price competitive. And so uh, because of this indigenous focus, uh, indigenous innovation focus and, and localization pressures, uh, our companies and multinationals tend to be a little bit less uh, cost competitive in India. So given all of this complexity, how are we helping our clients uh, navigate this fast uh, moving and, and rapidly evolving market? Uh, what, what, what have you heard successful executives doing that enable them to achieve outperformance? Yeah, so one of the things that we saw that uh, are, is kind of highlighting how or differentiating successful executives from the rest is really executives that adopt a structured process, you know, really understanding, evaluating, and managing the, the competition in India in a, in a very strategic way um, are able to uh, get success. It, sh it can't be just an ad hoc um, policy or, or sort of a, a strategy. It has to be well thought out and really focused on differentiating products and their own value propositions in the market uh, to drive that one important point, which is to retain customers, enhance their brand loyalty, and really increase the stickiness of their product uh, that will allow them to differentiate. Now, we in FSG can help our clients do this in, in a variety of different ways because we can help them understand their customers, help them adjust the value proposition accordingly, examine what value-added services would be most beneficial. Uh, but in this particular report, uh, we use a very strategic framework, uh, which is essentially the 4Ps framework, stands for a position, product, partner, and process uh, that helps our clients outperform in India. And this, this uh, framework was really built after um, testing and speaking with numerous executives um, in order to be able to develop something that really resonates with the market. Can, uh, I, I, there's a lot of detail in the study, but can you maybe highlight uh, a little bit more detail on, on the four P's and, and give us a sense uh, or a little bit of a tease for each of them? Absolutely. Um, so let's start with the first one, which is positioning. So this essentially is talking about the importance of understanding your own uh, and your own competitors' uh, market positioning. So really recommending how executives should adjust their marketing and branding strategies uh, in order to obviously map the market, but also uh, to their own objectives, which would basically help them either enhance their, their product differentiation or cater to uh, the middle market, uh, which is which is the new segment that they, they are focusing on. Um, the second is uh, product localization. 
This outlines uh, how MNCs can basically adjust their products, their, their value offerings uh, to better serve their existing customer base uh, with either lower costs or basically entering new, new markets and, and new segments with more innovative and more, I guess, localized uh, uh, products uh, for, for that particular market. The third is partner. We hear a lot about partner here in Asia Pacific uh, simply because uh, there's a lot of emphasis on this. And in particular, in countries like India, local uh, partnerships are really very critical. Uh, Companies can use uh, local partnerships to leverage cost effectiveness, uh, get greater market access, improve and widen their distribution networks, and also take advantage of regulatory, uh, sort of to take regulatory advantages of using Indian partners, um, you know, through things like outsourcing, joint ventures, other strategic alliances as well. And the fourth final P is process, which is essentially focused more on maximizing the operational efficiency and adjusting the internal organizational structures uh, to be able to create more agility within the company and to effectively align with the overall competitive strategy in India. That's uh, super interesting, and there's a lot more detail in the study, and I know FSG uh, can provide a lot of support to our clients, depending on where they are in the spectrum of, of maturity uh, across uh, all of these or, or individual components of the four-piece uh, four framework. Um, for instance, if our clients are focusing on, let's, let's pick one, uh, the third P, local, local partnerships, um, that's an area where we have numerous resources to support them, whether it's uh, our series on managing distributors in India or evaluating partnership models, or even through very specific projects uh, under our channel capabilities and all of our channel advisory practice, uh, choosing the right channel partners, um, optimizing performance, uh, uh, performing a diagnostic on, on uh, partner capabilities, a partner capability assessment, or in, in some cases actually making transitions. So we look forward to that. And I think uh, in, in the study, uh, I think it was page 14, provides a really great summary of uh, how you've mapped all of our India um, content series uh, and data to the various um, resources um, that we've produced at FSG uh, to this four-piece positioning so that our clients can have a, 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 a set of tools and frameworks to help them uh, guide, guide their way. Um, let me let me just uh, ask one more question, Pratima, as I'm watching the time here. I think you and I could talk for hours about this topic, but um, out of respect to our listening audience, let's uh, let's let's try to get to a final question. Um, I know you've been speaking with our executives for months now, and as we uh, look at putting the framework into action, can you highlight one or two tactics that you've seen? resonate with our clients. In your report, I should point out that you highlight uh, and provide case studies on 10 different tactics, but maybe maybe pick one or two um, that we could, we could highlight. Maybe I could ask uh, one under positioning and maybe one under process. Sure. Um, you're exactly right, Rich. We've got a lot of uh, tactics in the report, 10 tactics to be precise. Um, and, and these can be, can just, I guess they vary, vary based on the presence, the priorities, challenges, the resources, the investment that you know our clients have for this market. Uh, but as you mentioned, I'll highlight two. Uh, the first under positioning. So uh, if, we, if we take the example of, of this particular company we spoke to, which is in the agribusiness sector, uh, so company Beta, uh, Beta was uh, basically struggling 
struggling to differentiate its products in India, and it was really facing a lot of local competition because competitors and local competitors were becoming a lot more sophisticated. So this is kind of mapping into our second challenge, which is that local companies were becoming sophisticated. Um, now, what, what was happening in India is that, like the, many other MNCs, uh, one of the critical components and one of the critical differentiators of Beta's strategy and value proposition is service. And um, this was a big challenge in India because as an agribusiness uh, company, it, it was facing a lot of fragmentation in the market. And, you know, the lack of infrastructure um, and all of that combined made it very difficult to serve this market. Um, so essentially, Beta was trying to develop and think of a, a very low-cost way to serve the market. And it was using and positioning its service as a differentiator uh, from local competitors. So the way that they, they did this was uh, it capitalized on the uh, rapid digitalization that's taking place in, in India. In particular, uh, mobile technology uh, really helped Beta lower the cost to serve rural markets. So it used this digital connectivity to serve rural customers through mobile apps, and it basically enhanced its localization uh, through the option of communicating in the vernacular based on the, the farmer and the customer location. So uh, really enabled a, a, a mobile Mobile app really enables Beta to communicate directly with the customer, provide information-based um, after-sales service, support, and really create regular touch points that help this company build loyalty, trust, and dependence. And we know that uh, this is actually a really big concern in India. So the fact that uh, this mobile app helped Beta overcome some of that, um, that uh, lack of brand loyalty, it was able to, because of those factors, uh, position its service as differentiator and get closer to the customers. I was just going to also point out, not to mention that in, the, in that particular instance, it's real-time uh, interaction. You don't have to go through layers of distributors and resellers and that sort of thing. You're, you're in direct dialogue on an ongoing basis with your, with your end customer, and that gives you real-time market feedback in addition to the brand loyalty. So it helps you in your future um, pricing and in your future positioning of your product and your product strategy. That's exactly right. It actually helps and feeds back into beta strategy to be able to con constantly improve this and get even closer to the customers and remove some of those uh, those extra layers that it has in terms of the information and the communication flow. Um, and, and just that, that one last point on this, actually, Rich, you highlighted some of those benefits, that, that um, bonuses, I guess, that accrue. We've also seen something like this resonate very, very well with healthcare companies or any companies that really sell products where the information on product application and usage is very important. And as a result, companies need to get closer to the end customer. So this is not really something that uh, is limited to uh, an industrial or, or agri-based company. It's something that uh, pharma companies uh, also use uh, in India today. So anywhere you can highlight your portfolio and your product as a differentiator. Great. And then the last uh, last one you were going to highlight was on process, maybe one one tactic. That's right. Okay. So the last thing I'll highlight is basically um, on uh, this particular case study and tactic that company Lambda did. So most companies, when they're improving processes, uh, are basically uh, improving their internal in, uh, efficiencies, you know, cutting down costs and making that uh, sort of the, the focus. But Lambda did something very uh, interesting and slightly different. It's basically a chemicals company that is currently, and was at least uh, before they implemented this tactic, facing very stiff competition from Chinese suppliers in India. And so what happened was the company started losing a lot of market share because it was relative to the Chinese competitor priced much higher. And as we've discussed, um, you know, the Chinese uh, com companies operated on a different model. And so they were able to keep costs much lower and were priced lower. 
however, Lambda actually understood that there was one particular sort of, um, I guess, um, problem that its customers were facing when they were buying product from the Chinese competitor. It was that the supply was not reliable. So basically, during periods of overcapacity in China, uh, the Chinese companies would flood the Indian market with product, uh, but at other times, there would be a lot of supply disruptions. And so really, Lambda was able to focus on that as its competitive advantage and, and highlighted that, uh, you know, its supply reliability uh, was its main differentiator. And so it shifted the conversation from price to supply. And as a result, it was basically able to create a lot more demand for its product and, and basically create a little bit more of a customer base that really valued that supply um, reliability. So essentially, eventually, this company it, it took a uh, thorough assessment of the um, entire country and realized that Chinese uh, competition was going to stay and uh, really set up a warehouse in order to become closer to customers and um, thereby localizing its supply chain as well. So really kind of made substantial substantial improvements in the time and the costs uh, to serve its customers um, and also started holding inventory for its partners, which was another big bonus because um, uh, it could use that uh, supply and, and uh, sort of inventory um, or holding of the inventory as, as a bargaining um, sort of, um, I guess, um, negotiating tactic with its distributors as well and really helped them uh, reduce the cost of their inventory holdings. Um, so it's basically being able to understand uh, where your weak, where your um, comp competitors' weaknesses are. Uh, in this case, it was basically volatile um, supply, and really kind of exploit that to your advantage. That worked. Great, Pratima. Thank you so much for the time and the interesting discussion. We just have to remember there are four Ps and ten tactics, and and there are each of the we we did two of the tactics, but there are very good uh, and detailed case studies on each uh, of the tactics, which I think is fascinating. Look forward to hearing more uh, from you on how our clients are using this uh, research and incorporating the analysis into their broader India competitive strategy. Thanks very much for having me, Rich. I really enjoyed speaking with you today. And on that note, I'd like to remind FSG clients that you can speak to Pratima or any member of the FSG research team by scheduling time via your client services director. You can also access all of our research, uh, including research on winning in a more competitive India, the entire India uh, series, and all FSG content and data on our Frontier View platform. Uh, this concludes our podcast. Until next time, we wish you great outperformance in your key markets, and thanks for listening.